we know that you wanted to be at the Fight Laugh Feast Conference, but you can't come all the days. We have a day pass where you can come on Saturday where you get to hear great speakers like Pastor Doug Wilson, Pastor Jared Longshore, Pastor Toby Sumter, Cross Politics Live Show with Jason Woodlock and Megan Basham. Join us for the Sabbath Feast where we get to laugh with comedian John Brannion, all for the low, low price of $99. Sign up for the day pass, flfnetwork.com. Looking forward to seeing you there at the conference. Um, I have to tell you a story real quick before I start telling you another story. The, um, the truth is that I shouldn't be here today because I got on a plane yesterday with my wife in Los Angeles to come out here, and we were supposed to land about 8 o'clock or so in Nashville. We were leaving L.A. at about 2-something in the afternoon, and as of 9.30, we still hadn't left uh, because Vice President Kamala Harris was going to be leaving out of Los Angeles, and they shut down all the airspace, and 110 flights got grounded. And I was hesitant to share this story because I don't want to say anything negative about Vice President Harris to this crowd. But I was really upset at her. And yet, the fight did end up getting out, and we landed at Nashville at 3 in the morning, and I was actually on Fox News at 7 in the morning, and so everything kind of came together barely, but I'm very glad that the fight got here and that Vice President Harris's fight was okay and that uh, I am here to talk to all of you once again. The Thank you. It is a little unfair, the topic of the conference relative to my topic because there was all this setup about sex as the, as the topic and there's all this controversy, it's kind of sensationalized and, and, er, and I see some of the topics and other people are really gonna be talking about sex and then he gets me my assignment and it's kind of more boring economic stuff and I said, well, it's not fair that everyone else really gets to talk about sex and then I thought that's probably for the best, probably smart. But as he mentioned, last year I um, addressed the crowd at this event, the subject of punk rock Kuyperianism, and I know that at least uh, a fair amount of you may not have been there last year. I think they have the talk up at, on YouTube. But the concept last year, and we made a big joke out of it, but it was really pretty serious, was that um, I had a background in music many lifetimes ago, and I have a lifetime, past, present, and future, dedicated to the concept of Kuyperianism, and that we wanted to blend what that sort of meant, a kind of ethos, if you will, combined with an ideology um, that could be defined as punk rock Kuyperianism. And just to very quickly recap, we talked about a sort of fearlessness and courage that comes with the punk rock side of it, a willingness to go off of instinct and impulse but not exclusively, a counterculturalism, the proverbial wisdom on balancing instinct and careful deliberation. And I concluded with an exhortation that I believed one of the needs of the hour for punk rock Kuyperians, which I hope is all of you, is to be more subversive, more virtuous, I'm sorry about that one, and to value technique more than we do. Subversive, virtuous, and to value technique. 
Well, believe it or not, punk rock home economics is about sex, in a sense. It is punk rock. It is iconoclastic. It is economic. It is financial. And so I'm hopeful that I'm qualified to talk to you about three of those four things. For the fourth one, read Mark Driscoll. Too soon. All right, to thank those of you who got it. Can we start with the name home economics? How many of you took the class home ec when you were in high school? Does that ring a bell? I don't, I don't know if they teach it anymore or not. Um, I don't think we should skip over the fact that when we look at the subject I'm about to speak on, we called it home economics, not house economics. And this is tangential to the talk I'm about to give, but I want to say it because I don't get the opportunity often to reinforce this point, which I think is a very important one. In my talks about the cultural implications and the moral implications and the theological implications of what was the great financial crisis that our country endured 13 years ago, and as we face all sorts of various economic challenges and controversies and... and to this subject, one of the points that I believe was essentially never made in the aftermath of the crisis, um, my friend Jenny Morris, her, uh, Dr. Jennifer Roback Morris, who's frequently lectures with the Acton Institute, a brilliant Catholic economist, she's lectured on this a bit. She doesn't have a huge name or profile. Um, and, and I alluded to it in a book that I wrote called Crisis of Responsibility. But there's a lot of material out there that um, uh, I think in, in, some in some cases in a really interesting and cogent way addresses some of the causes of the financial crisis, some of the excesses, some of the, the breakdowns, some of the failures in different institutions or what have you. The approach that I took, as I am prone to do, is to blame Main Street. And my book, Crisis of Responsibility, spoke about the financial crisis for what it really was. Yes, a breakdown on Wall Street. Yes, a breakdown of government policy. Yes, a failure of monetary policy. All of those things. But the notion that Main Street was a victim of the crisis instead of a co-perpetrator is factually ridiculous. And yet, the angle that I just want to point out when we use this term, home economics, is that we don't call it house economics because some of us know the difference between a house and a home. And this is not a cutesy expression or the chorus of a song. It is profoundly important that we differentiate between a home as a place in which a family is raised, where dreams are carried out, where there are hard times and good times that people who love each other go through together, where sacrifice is exerted, where teaching takes place, where the sort of journey of life happens within a home, within this long abandoned institution called a family. A house is four walls. And of course, various amenities, accoutrements and things like that. But a home is not a Viking refrigerator. And we did not have a housing crisis, we had a home crisis 
because people, instead of valuing the concept of a home, the concept of economic stability, the concept of the values in which you raise a family, instead we viewed a house as a trading card, a highly leveraged trading card, okay? And I think that that um, home-house distinction was never going to get any traction, not just because it was unknown people like me and Jenny Moore saying it, but it was because that would actually force economists and policymakers and pundits to go where they're totally unwilling to go, which is to admit that actually all that crazy right-wing social ethics, religious stuff does matter for economics. It does matter for politics. It does matter for public policy. As long as we can get away with sort of pushing off the moral and family value stuff to the fringe and treating it as a sideshow, then we will be able to continue to focus and talk about economics in the way that we want. I think it is incredibly dangerous. But like I said, this is somewhat tangential, but with that said, I want to ask you a question. I, yesterday morning, before I went to LAX, uh, spent my very first time in my entire life doing something, um, and that is teaching high schoolers. And so I am teaching in a course in economics this semester at the Christian High School in Newport Beach, California that I founded uh, eight years ago. And my uh, oldest son is a junior in the high school. It's called Pacifica Christian High. You can look it up online, pacificaoc.org. Um, we're very proud of what we're doing at the high school. But, um, you know, these kids got to learn economics before they go off to whatever Christian or not Christian college they go to to unlearn it. And... My, thank you for that laugh. That got more than the Driscoll one, so Darren, take note. I um, shared yesterday in the opening of the class that, that, you know, the first semester is entirely about economics, economic theory, economic philosophy, how to think, and in the second semester, we're going to do a full breakout of financial planning and and more uh, specific into finance. So theory first and, and application second. It's a crazy way to do things, I know. But I want to ask you guys the same question I asked them yesterday, and it is somewhat hypothetical, or I guess, I'm sorry, rhetorical, um, but it shouldn't be because people in the world most certainly do not answer it in real life the way that I suspect you're now going to feel manipulated into answering it. But I want to ask you, if any one of you could have a wand and be the king for a day, you have that sort of presidential um, uh, power and, and the management of the economy belongs to you. Now, of course, I understand. I don't believe the management of economy can ever belong to a civil magistrate, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. But if you could trying to accomplish the greatest outcome for only one thing, and that is economic well-being. If you could have your hands fully on the lever of minimum wage policy, how not just minimum wage, but all wage policy, for good or for bad, whatever side of the issue you take, you could fully control either the freedom or greater regulation, whatever your preference is, on how laborers are paid in the country, 100% control on tax policy, and 100% control on stimulus and spending, either if you're a believer in it or, or you want to moderate it or you don't want to do any of it or whatever, 
these are major categories, how laborers are paid, tax policy, and government spending. You have full control over those things to, to create an outcome of economic well-being in the country. Would you rather have your hands on those levers or marriage, friendship, and sexual fidelity? The first basket of things, huge economic policy categories, or the second category of things, values, institutions, morality, family, and the specifics I'm offering are marriage, friendship, sexual fidelity. Raise your hand if you think you could create more economic well-being from the first basket than the second. Every one of you is brilliant. Marriages that stay together are good for the economy, true or false? Ask Jeff Bezos. Friendships, good for an economy because we trust each other and an economy is based on free exchange, an economy is based on social cooperation, and the entire ability of mankind to bring itself out of caves over thousands of years has come from the concept of free exchange and the social cooperation that comes from such. So friendships are good for that cause or bad for that cause. They're not just good, they're vital. So in a society that has a low value on friendship, they inevitably have a low value on economic well-being by implication, and then sexual fidelity. You're not supposed to talk about it. I can talk about it at this conference. I think I get in trouble if I don't talk about it at this conference. You can't t you, you're not supposed to go around saying it. Now, now Daniel Patrick Moynihan said it about the African-American community in the 1970s. Um, Charles Murray pointed this out about uh, middle white America in, in 2013. People, more and more people are coming around to saying it. It's still not really acceptable to say with a lot of right-wing circles and, and, and certainly in a lot of left-wing circles. But I think it, it, the last place left where we can still kind of just come out and say it, I'm not right now for my purposes and the reason they put me on this stage talking about the morality of sexual fidelity. I'm just merely pointing out the economic implications. There isn't poverty in America where there are not kids born out of wedlock. Do you guys understand that? Sociologically, not micro, not isolated cases, not specific situations, but that as a systemic principle, we basically know this. The 1960s, the sexual revolution created poverty in the sense that where we have poverty now is where we have a total and complete disregard for sexual fidelity. It is not my position here, although I have opinions, and we already know that our opinions are basically the same on this stuff. But it is not my point here to get into what those various sexual do's and don'ts aren't. It's to point out that economically, those who are arguing for more of the sexual revolution are arguing for the things that have created an incredible, gaping hole of capital in our economy. So yes, sex and economics are incredibly connected. And yes, the way in which an economy would be managed and controlled if it could be, would be far greater. This is, of course, nobody who didn't raise their hand, myself included, 
would say we don't have strong opinions on wages, on, on workers, on tax policy, on trade policy, on government spending. All of that stuff's vital. But if I wanted to move the needle, if I wanted low-hanging fruit, and I only got my three wishes, so to speak, marriage, friendship, sexual fidelity, could not come up with three lower-hanging fruits if I tried. The irony is that this is the stuff that we care about. And it matters more to economics than the stuff economists care about. And that should scare us a great deal. But in the crux of my message today, I'm going to give you an algebraic truism. I'm going to give you an algebraic formula that is not controversial. It's a tautology. And yet, when we extract from it, the fullness of its implication, you will see why punk rock home economics is such an invigorating and important topic. Economic growth equals population times productivity. You got that? The total economic growth of a nation is equal to the population growth of the nation and the productivity. So, a nation of five people all producing a unit of one, or a nation of 10 people all producing a unit of half, both have the same size of the economy. Now, now stop me if you need me to go slower here. Are we okay? My high school kids got this part. Producing one and you double the population, one of the uh, variables has now moved your total sum product up, correct? Move both higher, you continue to go. So United States economic growth, post-World War II, greatest economic expansion in world history per capita. Massive population growth and massive productivity. We're all on the same page here. One can get by as a country with um, disappointing population growth especially if, like the United States, they make up for it with greater productivity. We've done that more recently. One can very much struggle as a country when they struggle in both categories. Japan, for the last 30 years, an upside-down demographics tree, an aging population with no children, no young adults. So they suffered with population at a time the deflationary spiral was bringing down productivity. Economic growth suffering with both variables. So the golden era, because you know what blank, when A times B equals C, if you want C to be higher, you want both A and B to be higher. We're good? The population side of the equation, home. The productivity side of the equation, economics. Home economics. This is the thing that drives me bonkers as a lifetime Christian who has more or less been a lifetime Christian of particular distinctives and commitments throughout that, that period. We who are pro-children and pro-family should be dominating the productivity side, and we are not. Let me re rephrase that. Because I think there are some people I may not have offended, and I want to keep saying it until I offend everyone. We who are pro-children and pro-family should be dominating the productivity side of the economic growth equation, and we are not. I will talk about why. 
Let's invert that for a second. This is not in my notes, but it, it, it occurs to me that it's reasonably true. My wife and I have an apartment in um, Upper West Side of Manhattan, and there is, believe it or not, actually quite a few families there now that have kids. There didn't used to be. It used to be almost all singles. There's a pretty significant um, gay population there. There's a lot of pre-married people. They're, everyone gets married so much you know, later in life than they used to. But like, we can basically tell who the Christians are because if we see a family with three kids, they're Christian. Like, for sure. You really don't see that many families that are, are you know, uh, not um, uh, of our faith distinctives with two kids. You might see that. It's not very common, but there's a ton with one, one kid, right? So my point is that this is just a cultural phenomenon. I'm not picking on those people or that neighborhood, but I'm making a sociological comment that isn't very... Uh, uh, disputable, I don't think, that there's an awful lot of people now getting married later, not getting married at all. That has huge implications to household formation. And, and then when they are, they're having less kids than ever before. So we're talking about uh, economic growth equation of population and productivity. And I would argue that there's greater economic growth coming from people that don't carry our distinctives. And we're starting off with this huge advantage because we have this population side. We are, we're, we're pro-children, we're pro-family. We, we like all this stuff. We want to have kids younger, want to get married. We like the institution of family. And I think that, that there are so many in the world that are not big on the population side. They're holding their A of the A times B equals C. They're holding their A down, but their B is much higher. And so my talk today is not about, hey, all of you people out here are not Christians that decided to come to Gabe's conference. I would like to ha talk to you about having more kids. Uh, that's not really my focus. It's more talking to all of you who are Christians about how to be more productive in the society and why that version of home economics is the variable in which we have more control and more responsibility over. Um, Gabe asked me to address on the cornerstones of a functioning society, the cornerstones of a, an optimal economy. And I want to I kind of um, set a few foundational things here as we continue. First, a strong individualism that is inseparable from self-government. So many on the right now, so many that have a real affinity to much of the Lockean liberal order uh, miss the second part of this. And most of our founding fathers did not. Some did a little bit. I'm an individualist when we're talking about the, uh, my beliefs about social organization, um, why I believe in bottom-up formation of society versus top-down command control. But my belief in individualism is completely inseparable from my belief in self-government. And it wouldn't matter if it wasn't, because it would just mean I believed in something that had no chance of ever happening. There will never be a vibrant individualistic society without self-government. There never has been, and there never will be. And the reason I know this is because God said so to the Israelites. Billions of years ago, just kidding, thousands of years ago. So age of earth jokes trumps Driscoll. Okay, we're making a mental note for next year. The, let, me, let me read quickly a quote from the incomparable Yuval Levin. As it turns out, our capitalist age is generally not an age of discipline, far from it. Our society in most respects is a study in unbounded appetite. 
Our chief public health problem is obesity. Our foremost social pathologies result from an absence of sexual restraint and personal responsibility. Our popular culture, much of the time, is a diabolical mix of Babylonian decadence and Philistine vulgarity. And our public life is a gluttonous feast upon the flesh of the future. We use more than we need, spend more than we have, borrow more than we can pay, and for all our immense wealth, we somehow manage to live far beyond our means. In fact, it is almost fair to say that we lack for nothing except discipline. Strong individualism, inseparable from self-government, a cornerstone of a functioning society and economy. Number two, this one may bother some people in the room. I don't know. I hope it does. But it's incredibly important that our voice on this matter be heard. Strong institutions that come from a virtuous population and in turn reinforce a virtuous population. Let me say this again. Strong institutions that come from a virtuous population and in turn reinforce a virtuous population. We're living in a moment where a certain populist instinct, largely driven by a certain degree of understandable fear, largely driven by a revolt against things that are worth revolting against, has led far too many to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And when you disagree with what an institution is doing, that is not the same as not believing in the institution. To the extent there are a whole lot of unfaithful churches, we don't have the prerogative to say church doesn't matter. To the degree there are a whole lot of abuses and excesses from civil magistrate, we don't have the right to say we do not need civil government. And those are two huge ones in the sort of Kyperian model of sphere sovereignty. But this applies all the way down the pecking order in civil society. You do not want to live in a society that lacks institutions. Those institutions have a responsibility to behave a certain way, as individuals do. We only have two choices here. This is the most binary thing I'm going to say today. You either get a virtuous cycle between your institutions and individuals, or you get a vicious cycle. And those that are celebrating the death of institutions are celebrating the inevitable death of the individual and the soul of the individual, and it will result in greater statism and tyranny. It will not result in finally the individual trumping the institution. We need strong, multi-generational, covenantal institutions to have a functioning economy and society. From Yuvalovin again, moreover, an economics of growth and an ethic of restraint made for an awkward match, and the disciplining signals of the market alone are not enough to bridge the gap. We would be mistaken to assume that capitalism could produce sufficient moral authority to provide that balance on its own. Such authority would have to come from more traditional moral and cultural institutions beyond the market. And our case for capitalism must therefore also be a case for those institutions, for the family, for religion, and for tradition. Democratic capitalism at its best combines the strengths of these institutions with the power of the market. Number three, the social cooperation that comes from a system of free exchange. And this is what I alluded to earlier. That when we talk about strong individuals and we talk about strong institutions, when we talk about economics and we say we're Christians and we're, we're on the right and we're pro-freedom and we're pro-this, pro-that, 
And what your definition of free market economics is, is just simply leave me alone and let me do my thing and I'll eat what I kill. I want lower taxes, lower regulation. You haven't necessarily said anything I disagree with, but you have certainly not defined a holistic worldview-centered view of economics. You've just tapped on a couple of the symptoms of what it might look like. The fact of the matter is, is that free enterprise only flourished as a system, and by the way, it's only been a very, very, very small part of human history that this is true. This free exchange, free enterprise exists because we learned post-enlightenment into the modern age that lo and behold, when people trade with one another, they stop killing each other for the most part. They generally create institutions that led to more democratic norms and so forth. There was an awful lot of precedent of this out of the Greeks. And over time, what we now refer to, if we actually want to go back to the 18th century to say this is kind of where classical economics came from out of Adam Smith into the early 19th century with Ricardo and Say, I think that's a mostly accurate historical timeline. But the fact of the matter is, it was never merely rooted in the concept of leave me alone. It was rooted in the concept of being left alone because you build prosperity out of free exchange and the human interactions that are unleashed out of that. The productive energies, the creative capacity that was not created in 1776, it was not created with John Locke, it was created in Genesis 1. And we believe that the flourishing of the human soul is most optimized out of a free enterprise system. Okay, so this is fundamental to why we defend economics. I do not defend economics because I want a lower marginal tax rate. But I do want a lower marginal tax rate. Social cooperation that comes from a system of free exchange makes for an entirely different society. So economics is essentially a study of human action, which requires an understanding of the human person, and underneath that, a view of human nature. When I say a view and understanding and a study, I mean a theology, and I think I mean what my dad would call a worldview. And this is the thing that is so upsetting to me. There are two different realities of human nature, both of which are fully true, that are missed when there is bad economics. One of these realities is missed by bad guys, and one is so often missed by good guys. Now, what is the reality of human nature that is missed by the bad guys? And all I mean by the bad guys is those that are generally antithetical to a lot of what we believe. Well, of course, it's the doctrine of original sin. You cannot formulate an understanding of human action and, and a full understanding of the human person without understanding the gravity of what took place in the garden. Before you have a full understanding of what took place at the fall, you have to have an understanding of what took place at creation. So we go in this order. Stop me if I'm going too fast. Because God did this in like billions of years. So Creation, fall, redemption. Simple. How somebody can thoroughly comprehend the dynamic of the human person to then understand human action, to then apply it to modern and sophisticated economics without starting with that basic historical redemptive framework is beyond me. 
So, so many attempt to understand economics without understanding the human person, or they attempt to understand economics with a faulty understanding of the human person, which is divorced from total depravity, divorced from sinful nature, divorced from redemption. But I believe a lot of people who get that part right get something else wrong. Or maybe, don't, don't, maybe they don't get it wrong, but they just miss it, or they ignore it, or they don't care about it. And that is the absolutely extraordinary capacity of mankind. Creativity, productivity, and resilience. There's nothing more punk rock than acknowledging the sinful nature of man and economics. And there is nothing more punk rock than acknowledging the indomitable human spirit in economics. But I say it again, because an awful lot of people you don't like could say the same thing I just said, and, and it wouldn't make them wrong. There is an indomitable human spirit that is pivotal to understand economics. They may not understand it the way I do, and in fact, they don't. may not understand it the way you do. But there is nothing remotely similar to denying original sin, denying total depravity, in believing in the resilience of the human spirit. It's not pop psychology. It's not fruit from the self-love, self-esteem movement. This is an unavoidable ramification of the doctrine of creation, that we are made in the image of God, that we are made with dignity, and that we are made to be co-creators with him. And that in that, not only after the fall do we have the sinful nature of Adam, but from the image of God, we have an incredible creative capacity and productive capacity that should be never underestimated when we try to understand progress, prosperity, and our potential for economic growth creation. So here are my punk rock exhortations. Number one, quit frowning on the idea of human exceptionalism. Embrace it and apply it to earthly stewardship. Mankind, both saved and unsaved, okay, was created with an incredible capacity. I would like to believe that those who have an appreciation for that creative capacity and that productive capability and that task and burden given to man in the garden have an even greater runway in front of them. I would like to believe we can be more economically productive than those in Silicon Valley or Upper West Side or Wall Street or the Beltway or any city, farm, or suburb in this country. I believe we have more productive capacity than those who don't. But the study of economics is not a study of Christian people's ability to get things done. It's a study of all people's ability to get things done. And this is incredibly important. Number two, punk rock exhortation. What I mean by punk rock? You guys can look at me and see how punk rock I really am, but I mean that spirit I talked about last year that I recapped earlier, okay? Do not apologize for self-interest or monetary aspiration. Rather, just seek to understand it better. If you guys could see the things I see from the Christian church, in their complete and total lack of comfort with the notion of vertical mobility, with the notion of human ambition, of achievement, of production, of monetary reward, 
Like they never read a single book of Proverbs. Like they don't understand the entire concepts from creation to fall to redemption. There's a whole exegetical issue here, but I believe philosophically at large, we're being held back by a theology that is afraid of self-interest and monetary aspiration. Now, of course, immediately one could and should and likely will point out the warning verses. We love the warning verses. Understand the verses. Reconcile them like you would anything else that is hermeneutically challenging. And when you do that, you gain an appreciation for the notion of mobility, which is at the core of driving greater productive achievement. I'll say more on that when we conclude. Number three, strong self-government and impenetrable families. Punk rock exhortations to this audience. Virtue, discipline, taming of the appetites, sacrifice, fruits of the spirit, all the stuff that gets in the way of what we really want to talk about, which is how mad we are at the government. Strong families. These are not merely the moral, and spiritual, and ecclesial expectations. These are the economic foundations, economic building blocks to our goals. Number four, a dominion mindset in the marketplace. Because there is no home economics without the marketplace. So I believe that this formula for embracing human exceptionalism, embracing self-interest with a proper theological understanding, pursuing strong self-government in your own life and impenetrable families in your homes, and then a mindset of dominion in the marketplace, I think this is the formula for punk rock home economics. I think it is the formula for cultural transformation. But I want to kind of go off script for just a quick second. Well, it's not off script because it's in my script. Shouldn't have said that. What I mean is it's off, it's off the point I'm making to make kind of an anecdotal point. I, I mostly want to point this, um, the, the speech I'm giving, these exhortations I just gave are really targeted to you all, to this audience. But, but those of us with a like-minded worldview who need to better understand and apply these things, I'm going to continue speaking to that audience that as long as God will let me, I care very much about a, a fully Kuyperian understanding of economics and dominion in the marketplace. But because this is a sex conference, and I've been mostly excluded from the sex talk so far, I want to make a comment about sex that is going to, I think, reinforce a greater point I've been making and I'm going to largely conclude with. The 2020 Risk Behavior Study, which is administered by the CDC, revealed a stunning 15% decline in sexual activity in young adults. An IISI study had the decline at 18%. 15 to 18% decline in premarital sexual activity from young adults. This must be because they have all found abstinence and morality, right? Hardly. It's because they're too lazy to go out and do it. Pornography and digital habits have done what three decades of focus on the family could not do. 
they've gotten young adults to have less sex. Can you imagine being so lazy you can't even have sex? Yes, that is the work ethic that we are up against. Moral relativism and stuck in mom's basement, literally. Is this a tangent to my talk? No. Because we have more than just a sexual ethic differentiation to offer, we have a work ethic differentiation to offer. Self, then family and home, then a dominant marketplace. What is an economy? My friend Dylan Palman defines it as, I love this definition, you're welcome to email me if, you, if you're not going to write all these words down. And you're also, I wasn't going to do this, what a great segue. You're also welcome to buy my book when it comes out uh, in, a couple, in a month or so here where uh, this definition is provided in the introduction. The book uh, is at uh, nofreelunchexonomics.com if you want to read about it. The cultivation of creation, it's good, through human labor, it's really good, for the provision of human needs, that's very good, that should deal with a lot of your self-interest concerns, through the relationships of exchange. The cultivation of creation through human labor for the provision of human needs through relationships of exchange. There's an awful lot in the Bible about why you don't have to be ashamed of self-interest and monetary aspiration. But just economically, to boil this down, one of the reasons you don't need to be is because you cannot grow economically if you don't meet the needs of others. Because you can't get paid unless someone else is willing to pay you for serving them. And you may be serving them with a good or a service through labor or through something more complicated, multifaceted. That's all economics is. We're delivering goods and services voluntarily, because we believe it's making some part of our life better. And if we didn't, we wouldn't be doing it. So we're serving the needs of others and doing so in an environment of friendship, community, all the, of course, the virtuous and moral backdrop that we believe in. There's nothing more punk rock than actually believing in what you believe. We have a church primarily disinterested in economic first principles, or worse, paying lip service to some of them, but then making exception after exception to the principles they say they believe in in pursuit of weak sauce social justice. But my friends, it is not enough to make fun of wokeism. It is not enough to have the philosophical and intellectual capacity to debunk secular humanist arguments. Home economics means marketplace dominion, and that flows out of what we already say we believe, the human person made with dignity by a God who loves him and her, who has called that person to extraordinary, creative and productive output. Shun mediocrity. Seek financial advancement because you want a better life and there is nothing wrong with that. And in so doing, thrive in a culture of abundance, prosperity, and most of all, productivity. I'll conclude with another quote from Yuval Levin and then my own pithy commentary from my new book that I think helps wrap up this whole subject. Our case is for the moderate virtues encouraged by market pressures, but finally drawn from deeper wells, from the wisdom of tradition, the love of family, and the divine and mysterious tug of a love beyond love. 
all of which must in turn be supported, encouraged, and strengthened. This is perhaps the most daunting challenge confronting the friends of capitalism today. Our purpose is to protect and strengthen our way of life, to stand up for a social and economic system that has lifted billions out of poverty and vastly improved our world in countless ways, and to avert a careless slide towards social democratic melancholy and decline. Ours is an argument for individual freedom amid moral order and for prosperity sustained by sympathy and discipline. It is an odd modern hybrid, but it is the conservative case for the liberal society. As such, it is also an integral piece of the case for America. Yuvala Vin. My comments I'll leave you with and that I left in this page of the book. The deeper wells of which he speaks are not luxuries. They are necessities for a liberal society. The secular enlightenment failed to understand that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Likewise, secular market economists fail to appreciate that the great objectives of a market economy are not sustainable without being married to what is the beginning of freedom, that is, the transcendent truths that give us the basis for love. Thank you very much. It is the duty of the free man to resist tyranny at every turn. Every man will either watch his freedom stripped away or take action to protect what he loves. Introducing the A3, the newest revolutionary body armor from Armored Republic. The A3 is the new standard for lightweight multi-hit body armor. A3 plates are incredibly light at 4.6 pounds. The patented design captures fragmentation while remaining multi-hit capable. The A3 will stop up to M80 ball, yet comes in at only 0.7 inches thick. The A3 is the thinnest NIJ.06 compliant or certified composite standalone plate that includes the drop test. The A3 is the first of its kind, patent pending, that combines an alloy strike face with polyethylene backing, revolutionizing body armor technology by providing strength and durability while remaining sleek and maneuverable. The A3 is the new standard in lightweight body armor. The fight against tyranny just got stronger.